City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, City Limits, it's the first Wednesday of the month, it's the first day of the month and therefore it's Transport Day and our regular transport commentator John McPherson is with us today in the, well on the line actually because we are as usual pre-recording because of the current situation. Look John, I'll, I'll just do this first because we get it out of the way and I know you'll feel bad about this. I'm just, there we are, I just poured a bit of tea. Oh good. And you must feel terrible John not being able to share it today as would Karina I guess. Um, Oh, yeah, terrible. Yeah. Karina, of course, especially in the buttons. I'm Kevin Healy. We're going to be talking transport later in the show. But uh, anyway, John, how are you surviving all this corona stuff? Pretty okay, Kevin, really. You know, my quiet life hasn't been disrupted all that much. Uh, maybe I'm going to the supermarket once a week and, and seeing a friend once a week. And other than that, very quiet. Yes, yes, it is. That's, it is that sort of life at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, checking up on a few friends on, on, on the phone. I mean, the phone's still decontaminated as far as I know. You can talk down the phone line without having to worry. <laughs> That's right, and thank goodness for that because it does keep, does keep us in contact with all sorts of people, doesn't it? It's, uh, it's been invaluable, actually. Yeah, look, just a few items today before we move on to transport. We'll have to wait. Without the clock, of course, in the studio, we don't know when it's going to be 27 past, John, so the problem there is when you start shaking. Just a moment, Kevin. I'm just bringing a clock over into my my. Okay. Look, we're going to open with a good news today, actually, because after the fires last summer in Kosciuszko National Park, it was believed that a smoky mouse, which is critically endangered and only exists in two places in the national park and in the far south coast of New South Wales, another area pretty close to there, obviously had been wiped out and was feared they'd been wiped out from that area so there were probably a few in the other areas still but that was hit by fire as well but motion sensor cameras in the last few weeks have found the mouse at seven burnt out sites in southern new south wales so it's a it's a good sign that at least they're still there and um that's a, that's a, a good news story that something survived. That we could make a make a silly pun about the smoky mouse surviving the smoke, I suppose. But we could, we could, John. Would <laughs> not only could you just did. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, but look, it is amazing. These little tiny creatures seem sometimes to be able to, you know, scurry right away or get into deep burrows or whatever they do, and survive this, these catastrophic events. Yeah. Yeah, and I assume what you know part of the fact that their danger, of course, is the fact that they'd be pretty open to ferals getting them, of course. But oh yeah, of course, yeah, the feral cats, no doubt. Yeah, yeah no doubt. Uh, I'll come back to this item later as well, John. In transport, Qantas, which sacked all those workers last week, yep. nonetheless has received, and this is up to about a month ago, it had received already by that time eight hundred million dollars in government support since the start of the whole COVID-19 episode. It's 800 million and still sacking workers. 
But last week, the government talked about how wonderful it was that it made available $250 million for the arts in all sorts of forms. And of course, we know the arts you know, cover a, a huge area of activities. But $250 million for the entire country of art, art, you know, whatever it is, and $800 million to, $800 million to one company, which got it from the start, and the arts only got it last week, so the people who, you know, singers, musicians, artists, all sorts of people in the arts industry, actors, have all been going without any income at all for all that time, and then a lousy, really lousy in their terms, $250 million to help them out. Yeah, you can guarantee the number of people employed in the arts is far larger than the workforce for Qantas, I must say. I would think so, yeah. And why they should be any less needy or or deserving than the Qantas workers, I don't know. It sort of shows the priorities, doesn't it, of of the conservative government we've got uh, at the moment. Qantas always seems to get special support and special care, um, even more so than Virgin, of course, which is maybe going to be able to uh, resurrect itself as a, as a competitor for Qantas, a desperately needed competitor for Qantas, by the way, um, if, if airfares are going to stay at a reasonable level. Yeah, well, we'll come back to that later in terms of how much air will be used, how much flying will drop or not drop, etc. in the future, we'll get to get onto transport. But yeah, and the whole question of public transport, I suppose, in terms of what happens post this. You can just see the, the way that Qantas is um, sort of not pampered, perhaps it's going slightly too far, but it's it's always very well looked after by, by government, that's for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. I always use the quote because it's interesting that when it was privatised by a Labor government, the argument was that the public coffers couldn't fund the outlays required, the investment required to keep it going with new planes and whatever else you needed to invest in. And therefore, it had to be handed over to the super efficient private sector who could do all that and run it properly. So the problem was it was government owned and therefore it couldn't financially survive. And yet when there were threats of Emirates and a few others coming into Australia and particularly on the lucrative Pacific route across to America, bringing in lines from there, the privatised Qantas, the now super efficient privatised Qantas said it was grossly unfair to let some of those lines in because they were government owned and had enormous advantages over them, John. <laughs> now, I had, I had great trouble working that one out. Well, obviously, their governments are a whole lot more uh, efficient than our government. Apparently, <laughs> yes. Sort of what they're saying, isn't it? Yes, it is. There was a report in the last couple of weeks, in fact, with the biggest growth in, in airline, not that there's many flying around the world anyway, but the, where the growth is occurring at the moment is, as they so-called come out of the virus, well, they haven't really, but they think they have, yep. has been government-owned airlines, some of those Middle Eastern ones that are, and others that are, that are government-owned. So the government-owned ones are doing better. Surprise, surprise. Well, um, their governments are presumably judging that the airlines are strategic, and they are strategic, let's face it. I mean, Australia being the distance that we are from the rest of the world, we do need an efficient international airline situation. Yeah, it's sort of interesting. We, we do it. We do the help by the back door, but a lot of those other governments seem to do the help to their airlines by the front door, which makes it quite a lot more transparent. Mm. And um, you, you can make then make judgments about what's going on. Yeah, and we've got the 
crazy situation here where the where we don't know what's going on with Qantas really in terms of what the government thinks. No, and I presume that the chairperson of Qantas or the CEO of Qantas won't be one of the people whose jobs are going to go, John. Uh, no. no. No, he'll be okay. That's good to know. Good to know. Yeah, yeah. There was some hurt last week, though, some weeping and gnashing of teeth almost, in, in particularly in the CFMEU office, John, when the report came out that Dyson Hayden had been, or the report said that he had molested a number of women. How he's denying this totally, of course. But the report must have really caused pain and an absolute agony in the construction union offices last week when poor Dyson, who, uh, of course, did such a great job leading the Royal Commission into the unions that Tony Abbott set him up for. That's right. Well, don't forget Bill Shorten was under the lash too from um, from Dyson. Well, it was very much aimed at him at the time. That's right. Yeah, and the view the view was he, he survived quite well under the lash from Judge Dyson, yeah. Yes, I wonder how he feels these days about the headlines day after day about himself because when there were spectacular headlines day after day during the Royal Commission of what witnesses were going to say about how dreadful the unions were, mm. and of course, under cross-examination, they all fell apart and were proved to be completely not what they said they were. Yeah. But sadly, the newspapers didn't have, have space then on the front page to retract what they'd said a few days earlier about the same thing. But that aside, there were also many occasions when those allegations were made and he didn't allow the unions to fully cross-examine the witnesses about those those matters because he thought it was saving time and a waste of time to cross-examine something that was pretty obvious, I suppose. Uh, yet last week he complained that the woman who did the report for the Chief Justice was not a lawyer, which assumes that if she's not a lawyer, she has no right to write a report. And and of course, she's also a woman, which probably might, might have shown a bit of bias there, John. Um, and at the same time, he said he didn't have the, he hadn't had the chance to cross-examine her. So he obviously believes in cross-examination himself. Yes, but of course, he didn't allow himself to even participate in this um, this investigation. No, no. no. <laughs> and so he, he was in a perfect position to say, "Well, it can't be um, it can't be legitimate." But but of course, he. Mm. Denied, denied him. You know him well. He didn't want to get into it, and then he criticizes. Then it's criticized for the for the lack of cross examination of the people who um, who complained. It's really very odd. I think he's one of those um, very strict lawyers who think every every transaction in life probably should be organized like a court case. <laughs> That's right, and you and you then send them the bill. <laughs> yes, is that too? Yes. The big bill. Mm. Of course, he, he, he did rule himself. He, if he had a chance to rule himself, he'd probably find he did nothing because you might recall he, he agreed to deliver the Garfield Barwick address at a Liberal Party event in the middle of the Royal Commission, which caused a real furor. But then he went back and ruled himself. Um, he said he just overlooked the, uh, the possible political aspect of it. But he then ruled himself that there was no bias in him doing that. Yes. Uh, and obviously there was no bias in him ruling. There was no bias in himself, but whatever. So he can probably make those sort of rulings anyway. But I just sort of comment that it must have really hurt the unions last week to hear what <laughs> happened to poor Dyson. Yeah. No, he's, he does seem to be impeccable in every way, does um, Judge Dyson. Yes. Yeah, well, a lot of them do, don't they, at that level, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, last week, even... Uh, 
Terry McCran, the very conservative financial writer for Murdoch, came out and agreed that if you allow for underemployment in Australia, the real rate at the moment is probably about 33% unemployed or underemployed. Ouch. Which is pretty awful, yeah. Uh, and, And yet you've got the bosses still screaming and yelling about, well, they, they'd say, of course, it's because workers want too much money and too much time off and penalty rates and all those things. But um, the uh, workers, they're still screaming out, in fact, that these things ought to be cut. There was an article last week in which a woman called Annie Brownjohn, who runs an organic pasta sauce business, said because people are eating at home, there's the, the business has gone through the roof and it's gone up several times. But she says that, in fact, it could have gone up much, much more if she, didn't, if, she, if she could have worked Saturdays and Sundays, but she couldn't because of the penalty rates that apply on those days. So that I think it's time we let the unemployed talk about the IR landscape we want to grow as a country because I've got grave fears where this is going to go, she said. Let the unemployed decide that they want to work weekends when in fact they don't, but not with penalty rates. So apparently the penalty rates are still knocking these poor employers about, John. It's awful. Oh, dear. So she's she's still after after penalty rates to go, even though her business is booming. That's right. Business booming. It could have boomed a lot more if she could have worked Saturdays and Sundays, but she had to close the bloody ovens down on Saturday and Sunday because otherwise she would have had to pay workers penalty rates. Oh dear, it's, it's, oh it's dear. so sad. Yeah. And they're still complaining about this boot, the better off overall test, which they say has to go. And in fact, the the Australian Convenience and Petroleum Marketers Association, there seems to be groups for everything, they said that they failed to get a single enterprise agreement past the Fair Work Act strict better off overall tests for the better part of eight years, despite some two dozen applications. Now, I would have thought they could have got them through if they didn't make somebody worse off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they haven't passed it because obviously they haven't passed it. Someone, you know, some workers, and that's the argument. They keep saying, well, it's a real barrier because what they never they never put it in this term, but they keep saying, but because we're not allowed to make some workers worse off. Mm. Yeah, well, well, you know, that's the way they look at the world. And, um, you know, the idea of, of having to put forward a more generous case <laughs> that doesn't occur to them, apparently. No. <laughs> to actually give workers a real pay rise, for instance, good heavens. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we, well, as we know, there's been very little rise in, um, you know, wage, real rate wage levels for what at least the last decade. It's been very, it's been very young. Yes, they kept the, they kept referring to the problem of slow wages growth. Yeah, and we kept pointing out that there was seen to be a simple answer to that, but they couldn't find one. No. <laughs> Somehow or other, they, were, they had to be forced into what, what raising wages rather than, um, rather than um, deciding that, uh, oh, well, we um, need to do it. Mm. Mm, and now they're fallen, of course, tr- trying to, uh, to, make, to fact, keep them even lower after, the, after COVID or if, if we do get post-COVID. But yep. the concessions that have been made now should become permanent is one of the big calls they're, they're going for, of course. Yeah, yeah, the, the impulse is always to restrict, restrict, restrict. I bet um, the corporate level wages don't, don't, get, don't get restricted in the same way. 
but you need people getting those sort of wages to make sure other people don't get wages. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kevin, that's a that's a very valid point, Kevin. Very valid, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> We've mentioned in the last couple of weeks the WorkPack case. WorkPack's a, a they provide workers on mining sites around the country, and they they were the case that went to court about about uh, casual workers so-called double dipping that then the court courts now ruled twice because they went went back a second time and had another crack at it yeah that casuals who are in fact permanent full-time employees should get all the benefits of permanent full-time employment yeah and of course the bosses argue but they already get a loading like as if like coming into covid because yeah. yeah. workers who got say 25 percent loading for holiday pay and yeah. other other things sick leave yeah. would say, well, I've put aside 25% for the last year, so I'm okay now, like, but from the lousy wages they get in the first place. Okay. But they're, they're, they're going to take, they're talking about appealing the thing, it was a federal court decision about going to the high court on this one, and right. you'd be pleased to know that Christian Porter, the Industrial Relations Minister, said the government will intervene and support them in the application, which they <laughs> did anyway in the previous hearing. But they say... Um, and in fact, the bloke from Wexpac says, we seek for the High Court to restore sense and clarity to casual employment on behalf of WorkPAC and the thousands of other Australian businesses affected by this decision. And Tony Ma, the president of the CFMEU, said the employer lobby should, be, should stop throwing money at lawyers and address this issue by stopping the unlawful treatment of casuals. WorkPAC oh. has been ca caught out using an unfair business model that employs people as permanent casuals. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Well, yes. Well, there we go. Um, surprise, surprise. The porter's on the side of big business there, there of course. Yeah, well, originally it was the previous minister who resided at the election, Kerry Oda, Kelly O'Dwyer, Oh yeah, she she was she originally intervened in this case that was only decided two or three weeks ago. But she was minister when they did it. But they're doing. He's even talking about if they fail with the high court, they may change the legislation anyway. Oh yeah, which which to me always throw always throws into question the quest that that whole separation of powers thing. That if judges rule against you, you just go and change the law anyway. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> Governments have always had that ability, haven't they? That's right. They, yeah. Oh, they do it. I mean, it happened here when we, remember we won a case I was charged with obstructing work on a freeway and yeah. we won the case because we proved the government had ignored its own environment laws. Yeah. It's the only case I've ever won. Uh, <laughs> only not guilty ever. But they went back next day and retrospectively made the whole thing legal. Well, of course they did, Kevin. Yeah, that's right. That was in the Kennedy era. Yeah, we live in a banana republic. Never forget it. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, last week, the uh, last week the Financial Review had a an all day seminar thing about the retail industry with all the usual suspects, and the only person there representing anything like the workers was Jared DeWire from the Shop Distributor and Allied Employees Association, the Shopping the Workers Union. Right. Uh, and he he says the union is open to making uh, rules simpler for workers. And we know that for years there's been deals done between mm. the big the big retailers and that union. Sure. Uh, and, and in recent times, the Retail and Fast Food, work, food Workers Union has come in and it's actually won a number of cases for workers. Many, most of the workers, the cases recently that have got gained benefits for retail workers 
have come from that work of that union intervening. But he, in his speech to this conference, which apart from himself was full of the bosses, he slammed the left-wing upstart retail and fast food workers union. <laughs> and he, he said it was a political organisation, not an industrial one. They're not interested in the outcome for workers on the ground. They're interested in political disruption. Well, the workers on the ground are a hell more better off in cases where they have intervened. So there you are. Yeah, yeah. And the same... The same man, Woolworths, you know if you notice, Woolworths last week said that by 2025 they're going to automate their distribution centres and this will make up to 1,350 workers redundant um, and 295 at Mulgrave here in Melbourne, which is interesting because when they automated that's the checkout things and people can check out themselves. I said that was nothing to do with getting rid of workers. Of course it wasn't. And DeWire in that case said the union was disappointed. <laughs> this is at a time of already high unemployment where there yeah, was a great yeah. uncertainty about the nation's economic future. But I, I would have thought a union when, when 1,300 workers are going to get the chop might be a bit better than disappointed. Yeah, well, we can see the point you're making, Kevin. Yeah, the shoppies, the shoppies have a very peculiar idea of what looking after the workers means. Yeah, very peculiar indeed, John. Very peculiar indeed. Then mm. the other one that's come up in the last couple of weeks, of course, as I mentioned it last week, the cuts to, um, or not the cuts, the the or the cuts to some courses. In fact, in terms of costs at university, the TN announced and the massive, the massive increases mm. to um, humanities, to uh, arts and law and. Yeah, anything, anything where you actually learn learn stuff that isn't designed for a job, although I'm not saying that people like engineers and things don't learn things, but um, he's also come out, I mean, it's, it's, it's just showing that they want education to be purely to get people into work. And yep. as I said last week, often, often they're aiming at something saying in four years, three or four years, you'll come out and there'll be jobs there. But the way the capitalist economy works in three or four years, those jobs might not be there either. That's the point. So you're training for something that won't be there anyway. But he now he's also come out and said they need to shake up the way they teach to provide accessible and quickly completed qualifications. So he actually wants to cut back on the time of some courses just to get people into work faster for the capitalist system, which is wonderful to see. Well, of course, it, it won't mean that the... Um sons and daughters of the well-off don't, don't continue to do arts, law and things like that because they'll, they'll be able to afford the higher costs. Mm, 800% uh, increase, I think it is. I think it's an 800% uh, increase in, in arts. Is it that much? I, I thought it was. it was something like a doubling doubling of, of the uh, costs. But anyhow, it's a lot. Anyway, I thought I saw 800 somewhere, but I might right. be wrong. might be for one of the courses. Um, but, you know, it's, it's all about really winding back the idea that anybody who you know, performs well enough can get into a, a course they can afford at university. Um, you just shouldn't allow people from ordinary families to to do, um, you know, interesting things like arts law. They should be forced to do a, um, a qualification for a, a, a career and that's all. And it's, it's, it's really the same old, it's the same old ideology. That's right. Just it's yeah. all about education. It's just to go and work for capitalism. By the way, Kevin, we've um, pretty much come up to the half hour. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Well, just, I'll just raise one more point here then because the, the Centre for the Study of Higher Education at Melbourne came did a study of it because it was the, 
The report that he acted on was done by Deloitte Access Economics, one of the big companies, and they, they're questioning the report anyway, saying it made lots of mistakes. Uh, for instance, they say the feeder study engineering is dropping 20%, but the government subsidy to the university is dropping 14%, which means less income for the university and less incentive to offer places. Humanities subjects will cost students so much more, it will be worthwhile for universities to offer extra places. But they, they're saying that while the same time as they're doing this, they're cutting their own, own, own fund, funding of universities as they keep doing. And the Group of Eight's chief executive, um, Vicky Thompson, said it was difficult to work out the exact cost of teaching, of course, given so many expenses are shared between faculties. What we do know, and the report identified this, is that teaching costs have continued to grow faster than the indexation of funding, even before there was a freeze on government contribution increases in 2018 and 2019. So he wants them to go on and he wants all this to happen while he continues to cut funding to tertiary education in the first place. Yeah. Well, there you go. It's, um, it's That's it. That's it. Do you want to talk about transport, John? I think so. I think we need to have a bit of a break, don't you? Well, I think we do. Let's take a break. City Limits will take a break. Back talking to John McPherson about what he's really on about, transport. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal Radio and um, you don't really get to do this much brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you yours. to all What's of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know, it's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there. As prisoners, we can't blame everything on the external. So let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here, and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 What a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbōhina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. 
Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Okay, back on city limits and uh, transport. But John, John, anything you wanted to raise in your favourite subject today? Oh yeah, it's sort of interesting times transport-wise because all forms of transport have taken amazing hits in terms of the amount of amount of people travelling. Um, not so much on the freight side, of course. Freight's continued to power on, but looking at uh, public transport and traffic on the roads and all that stuff, it's um, it's you know there's been major drops and it's nobody can really quite predict how things are going to end up after things are sorted out with the virus whether things will just go back to normal as they were before or whether things will stay uh, lower because for instance a lot of people will continue to work from home at least some some of the time and that may have quite an influence on the peak hour traffic levels on roads and public transports just for one example yeah, we're getting some mixed reports. Like there's some reports saying, well, it's particularly car travel is going back to something like you know a fairly high percent of normal public transport is down. But my experience, just as I walk across to get the paper every morning, I cross Sydney Road here, and I, I'm still seeing very little traffic on relative to what's normal on Sydney Road. It's still only I reckon no more than five or ten percent it looks to me mm. like because it usually is bumper to bumper and now you can almost walk across without ever to look yes yeah well i don't we don't know really where that where the, the measurements take place of road traffic you know it could be that levels have gone up again on the uh, major freeways and things like that but they're staying lower lower on the um you know the more localized arterials like say city right yeah, yeah. That's possible because I think I mentioned to you on the phone a couple of days ago that, that just a, a radio traffic report the other night I happened to pick up said that a couple of the freeways were chock-a-block, etc. So maybe something, maybe there was an accident or something, but it sounded like they were pretty much back to normal on a couple of those freeways, yes. Yeah. That's they, possible. They were saying things like that, but I suspect even if they are getting peak traffic on the freeways similar to the past, the peaks aren't lasting as long either, you know. And, of course, another interesting thing that's happened is the authorities are having uh, having the ability to do much more maintenance on roads and things at the moment because the um, they can argue that, that uh, they won't be causing um, traffic blockages so much. So they're getting on and doing maintenance that they might, might have wanted to do, do it sooner and doing it quicker, which I guess is a good thing. Also, of course, mm. keeping some employment, and um, I think similar things are happening on the rail rail system as well. That they're being able to get on and get projects finished. And that's of course a good thing too. So there's some yeah on that yeah no oh just some there so there are some advantages in the um, the drop in the drop in traffic levels. Yeah, so that's an issue, and it's really not an issue that can be resolved. You know, we, nobody seems to know where we're going to end up with the amount of use of roads and, uh, and public transport modes. But um, another thing that's sort of connected to this that's really interesting, that, 
and it's happening a little bit to a degree here in Australia, but it's been happening more in places like Europe, is that big improvements are being made to cycling and walking infrastructure. Because the roads mm. are quieter, governments and various kinds have been, say, um, sneaking in um, cycling lanes on the edge of roads and things like that because the complaints from motorists aren't so great when some space is taken back for cycling. Yeah, I was going to come to that later, but yeah. Yeah, and that's a good thing. Because there's also a big push on, um, but not just that they're taking advantage of it, but there's a big push by the cycling lobby, which is seeing cycling increase so much during this period yeah. to have better cycling facilities made available. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, even, and the same with walking. Often walking doesn't get mentioned as a, as a mode, but, you know, it's really the biggest mode. Mm. And, um, you know, cities have ended up often with narrow footpaths and very wide roads. Well, you know, maybe it's time to take back some more road space for walking as well. That's right. We can walk up the middle and the, tr the, the cars can drive up between the veranda posts. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, at the CBD in Melbourne is still, in my view, pretty much devoted to cars, even though the City Council claims it's um, made all these improvements very slowly over the last 30 years. It might be a time to get on and do some more restricting of, of, of motoring, particularly in the, in the CBD, for instance. Well, York, I was going to raise with you, your council, um, Yarra Council, I made a move last week to close three roads, one right near your place, um, Trenary Crescent in Abbotsford, Coppin Street in Richmond and Wellington Street in Collingwood, which is very was the end of your street, John. Oh, to actually close it? Well, they was knocked back. <laughs> they, they, um, they could have asked me first. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it was... It was um, Amended version was the original plan to free up bike lanes and footpaths to address social distancing problems involving involved shutting those three streets. Right. Uh, the council decided Wellington and Coppin streets would stay open, but with changes to the cycle lanes, and voted it. This is the real point now. John must consult with the community before making any changes to Trenary Crescent. There was heated debate. Stephen Jolly, the socialist councillor, said the outrage at the undemocratic proposal to close major streets without talking first to locals has had an effect. Council backed off and will now consult first on Trenary Crescent and have changed proposals for Wellington and Coppin Street. The council report said there would be some vocal opposition to the trials, which would cost up to 250000 uh, And Jolly said it would have a huge impact on local businesses and residents, but they were, you know, taking up the chance to try it and uh, who knows where it goes from here but there's the thought that they close those roads and open them up for bikes and pedestrians well well yeah well yeah wellington street near me of course they've spent a lot of money uh, on parts of wellington street putting in very elaborate bike lanes more elaborate than really would be necessary i think if cars were banned entirely from the street so that's interesting yeah See, now here we come to an issue of local um, newspapers and uh, things like that. You see, we, don't, we no longer have a local newspaper in our area. So the, Mel no, uh, no. the old Melbourne Times no longer exists. So, so frankly, I had, no, I had no idea these things were being talked about at council. So, you know, for good or ill, that's really interesting because that was a whole, area, whole thing that completely passed me by. It is one where you'd think they'd need to consult, yeah. It's probably, there might be some value in the idea, but it's one where you would need to consult local residents, wouldn't you, before you just went bang, I would think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know, I mean, I, I, um, I'm not opposed to the idea, but I find Trenary Crescent a bit 
hard to believe. I mean, I can see it being closed, for instance, for through traffic, but not closed for, for access traffic uh, because there are huge, huge numbers of new, you know, apartment blocks along there that have been built in the last 20 years. And, of course, every, everybody's got a car in the basement garage. So, yeah, anyhow, interesting. Yeah, so there you are. Anything else? Oh, yeah. Well, we've got the old airport rail link. I'll just, just note that briefly. The airport rail link, the whole thing's still grinding along. But it seems to have gone off the boil a bit because everybody's got so focused on the uh, dealing with the virus. We don't seem to be getting anywhere with a sort of rational decision about how much extra capacity we need for trains, you know, leaving the city, going to the west of, you know, Melbourne, to Geelong, Ballarat and Bendigo, all going um, to the airport. There seem to be, you know, debates about how much um, extra capacity we need and, and how much we need to spend. And then there's the private consortiums, the state government, the federal government, all these people toing and froing. But it's all done behind closed doors with the odd leak to the newspapers, which is very unsatisfactory in my view. I don't understand why the public can't understand what is actually being thought, thought about and what they might do. But it's all, it's all kept behind closed doors. And the only way we'll get to hear about this when it's brought out as a, a version of spin as a... Um, a lockdown proposal, and I think that's quite wrong. But, of course, on the other hand, at the moment, governments can borrow money so, so cheaply that um, it should be the perfect time to get going on the project. Yeah, and there's obviously two points of view being put very strongly, one by a particularly a business lobby that says we should have tunnels going through which will facilitate all sorts of things, including access to other areas. Mm. And the government saying, well, that one's too expensive. We'll just, you know, go to a tunnel at a certain point, but we're not going to build the tunnel that business wants. Yeah, well, my comment would be the business wants the absolute deluxe high-speed link to the airport. That's what I think they want. And they're not very interested, really, in ordinary travellers who, who, who aren't on business incomes who can afford an expensive, super-fast train. My... My view's always been that it should be something that's fast enough, but the, the fare should be at a more, you know, reasonable level. And anyhow, how fast does the line have to be to the airport? And do you make the line to the airport part of the normal public transport system or do you make it something, you know, whiz-bang deluxe? I'd say make it part of the ordinary public transport system. Mm. That's what we've always argued that, but you should be able to go there on a Mikey ticket. Yes, absolutely. But that... That doesn't seem to me to be where we're going to end up. We're going to end up with it being paying a special high fare like they pay in Sydney and um, and Brisbane. And I don't quite see that there's a need for that. Um, and then you then you get to the bit about the circular suburban line that the state government wants to build, and they seem very focused on that. And they've now, after their recent shake-up of the... Um, um, ministers um, looking after public transport, that's been um, shaken up a bit, although um, although the main the main minister, um, what's her name, you know, the one from Bendigo? Um, no, <laughs> what's, what's her name? Okay, anyway, we have the main minister, John, yeah, the main minister. She retains her job, but um, I think she now gets the extra role of she's minister for the um, circular suburban line around the round oh west. yes that's right I, I can't think of my name either I, I read that last week i can't think of my name either john yeah yeah, yeah. she's obviously made a big impression on us it'll come in a, it'll come to me in a moment 
So obviously the government thinks that's um, still thinks that's very important, but you know I think it's questionable that they should be building this circular thing when there's so many other parts of the present suburban railway network need to be fixed up. You know before you go go forward, and it's just it's just this sort of ratty um, approach where you pick up a project and you get excited by it, but you don't try to make that project part of an overall network you know, or overall system. It's just, you know, the quality of service that's offered to some parts of the built-up area are, are, you know, a lot worse than offered to other parts. No no consideration about the, about fixing all those sort of things. Um, are we talking about was Jacinda Allen, the woman we were talking about? Oh, that's who we were talking about, Jacinda Allen. Yeah. yeah. There's a story in... <laughs> I picked it up because it's in this story. Uh, there's a, there was a story in Mondays, which is actually when we were recording, but so it's this morning's, but two days ago as we go to air, uh, Herald Sun, uh, a major new development will create 34,000 jobs and allow 15,000 people to move into a new suburb in Melbourne's inner northwest, and it's going to be called Arden, near the Arden, and it's built around the, the Arden railway station, which is part of that metro tunnel project. Yep. And uh, it says it will create thousands of jobs, and it's... Um, it, transforms industrial land along Mooney Ponds Creek into a residential and commercial hub um, and it's you know that that's around that area um, Macaulay Road, Dryberg Street, the creek but it, it is one that's that's centred around a public transport network but Jacinta Allen said the suburb would be served by three stations with the metro tunnel connecting it to the city parkville and the western suburbs so does that in itself seem like a reasonably good idea, John? Well, if you think these large um, medium density developments are a good idea, yes, I guess it's a good idea, yeah. But once again, I think it'll be the case where the, the government finances all the infrastructure and then and then the private developers make all the profits. Yeah, it'd be, ni- be, the be way nice if... Things go, yeah. Yeah, I've got to say, it'd be nice if, um, given it's being built around a public transport network, if they put lots of public housing there rather than very private. Because by the sound of it, it's going to be very private, expensive housing, I suspect. Yeah, and it, and it'll almost certainly be high-rise too because that seems to be the way they always go because, it, because it's slightly cheaper to build high-rise than it is to build medium density, which most everybody would prefer, whether they're at the top end of the market or, or uh, at the bottom end. But what you get is um, is the um, high rise, so yeah. it will it will enable lots more people to live close to the city, which I guess is a good thing. And with luck, they won't be quite so dependent on their cars. But uh, that that remains to be seen too. Well, let's pick up on on the point you're making because the metro project is huge in terms of both its its size itself, but also in terms of its cost mm. and. As you say, it, it's going. It's in an area. It's in an area that's already well served by public transport generally. The, the whole well, network. A, well, that's a good point. That the that the, there are already two two train lines and a couple of tram lines that, to service that area, and they they already provide the linkages to the city and elsewhere. Yeah. Mm. And there's that very good bus service from North Melbourne over to Melbourne Uni. That one. Oh yes. That- a lot of people say it does a wonderful job. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a, that's the thing I wouldn't mind making a comment on in a minute too. Yes. All right, but I was going to say though that clearly all that money being spent on an area where you've already got reasonably good public transport by Melbourne standards. Yes. And yet, huge parts of the metropolitan area that have very poor public transport. Surely, yeah. you know, you can argue that 
the money would be better spent in those areas. Well, that's pretty much the point I made, was making five yeah. years ago. Yeah, that's right. There's no, there's no sort of coherent policy underlying how they provide public transport. It's almost, it almost happens at random. And, you know, surely... You know, there there are there are many many sites for good medium density development along current rail lines and things like that, rather than having to spend this. Um, well, it looks like it's heading easily for fifteen billion dollars for the Melbourne Metro Rail Tunnel. You know that that's huge amounts of money are being spent on that, and um, wow, isn't it wonderful that they can afford to do medium de- medium or high density development in Arda? You know, it's um, not exactly magic, but could could work out well. But it should, but, but that should mean a, a fairly a fairly large part of the Melbourne Metro Tunnel should be being paid for by the developers of the area. Yeah, I'll, I'll just just point out that you know the the whole issue of um, you know we've got this sort of almost random random rail system. You know, some bits of it have good quality services, and some bits have really poor quality services, and what you know, why on earth has it evolved this way? Lots of lines, lots of the suburban lines still end up at their outer ends having, you know, single track sections, which means the number of trains per hour that can run is severely controlled, you know, restricted. And it also means that the um, reliability of the trains is, is bad too because the single track section means the trains interfere with each other so often. So all these things are still going on on, at the ends of many of the lines. And when you get to junctions where the lines um, combine to come in towards the city, the the junctions are flat junctions where the trains have to cross in front of each other on on the flat. There aren't many what you'd call flying junctions where the trains go over or under each other. So they don't get in each other's way so much. All of those things are just ignored. Um, the quality of the railway stations is ignored on a lot of the lines. They're really poor. Even the quality of the track is not up to a high standard everywhere. It's still, it's still quite poor. The track's rough, needs lots of maintenance. All those things are still going on. It's lovely to see the level crossings being fixed, but the major beneficiary of the level crossing removal, of course, is the road traffic, not the rail traffic. Uh, so, you know... I think all these things should be being considered, certainly before we start building the circular suburban line around the city. I don't think it's even been shown how effective that circular suburban line will be in terms of generating more traffic on the, on the rail system or taking traffic off the present lines. There's been no, no proper report being done that where all this has been analysed. It all just came out really, as a, prim- a thought bubble from the Premier. And well, I was going to say, throughout all that time, you've been highly critical of it and saying yeah. that there were, there were other ways of achieving a better result in a much cheaper way, but it wasn't the big project thing that they love to talk about. Yeah, and I, I think that applies really to the circular rail line they want to build. And it also really replies, applies to Melbourne, Melbourne Metro. Um, but, you know, we, we're stuck with Melbourne Metro now because so much of it's already been built. But like the City Loop system when that was built, that, that sucked a lot of the capital expenditure for the next 20 years away from public transport because so much had been spent building the City Loop. So we're very good at doing these sort of um, 
major projects but not actually making the network as good as it could be. And it's a network that people use, not just a separate, a separate project. And if you want to keep people using public transport, you've got to provide a very good network. And then you get to buses. Mm. And, uh, yes, there's a very good shuttle bus between North Melbourne Station and Melbourne Uni, which does get used by a lot of people. And that's, that's great. And it's quite frequent, at least in the peak periods, it's quite frequent and people don't have to wait long. But that's frequency, of course, is an example of what should be on many, many other bus routes across Melbourne because the frequency on most, most suburban bus routes in Melbourne is pathetic. And that, of course, makes it difficult to transfer from one, one service to another because the low frequencies mean that you're very likely to wait a long time between, between buses or between a train and a bus. That's right, as you, as you have to get from one to the other, that, the other, that yeah. old connectability thing. But all that, that bus also, of course, we keep saying North Melbourne to Melbourne Uni, but it also services uh, all the hospitals in that area um, as well, which is incredibly useful to a lot of people. Particularly people coming in from the bush, they can get off at, they can get to North Melbourne, mm-hmm. and although they, of course, they bypass North Melbourne, don't they? Which is a bit of a problem. Some of those country trains. Yes, well, that was again another another thing that happened when the um, regional rail rail thing went in. You know, that did speed up country trains to some degree, and then the new lines were built for the country trains out to uh, Sunshine from the from the um, city. Of course, I might point out we've already built extra lines out to Sunshine for the country trains and possibly for the airport for airport trains. But yes, that line then, again, because it was more convenient and they could build it slightly cheaper, they decided to bypass um, North Melbourne Station, which makes, mm. which makes the um, interchange that was available at North Melbourne Station, not just to the bus, but to lots of other suburban trains, uh, impossible. Uh, you have to go right in, right into Southern Cross, and then retrace. When I come in now on to catch the upfield train, if I'm coming in from the bush or from Geelong or Ballarat line or whatever, yeah. Now it's much faster. It's, I mean, you, if you got off, if it went to North Melbourne, it'd be much much faster. But it's faster to get off at Footscray and then wait for the next train, next suburban train to North Melbourne. Yeah. To pick up the upfield line. Yeah. Uh, then to go through to all the way to um, Spencer Street. Sure, and come back. Yeah. But it but it is an inconvenience. If it still stopped at North Melbourne, you could just get mm. there and just change platforms. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was another, you know, that, that's another example of something they do all the time, is they being the, the, the planning officials who, who I think probably on the whole tend to be the advisors to the, to the ministers. They want to try and cut back the cost of various projects by slicing off a, you know, a couple of hundred million dollars here, or half a billion dollars there. And they, they reduce the convenience of projects. Another classic is the um, Melbourne Metro, where it now connects to the southeast, but it doesn't have a, a, a connection to um, South Yarra Station. And South Yarra Station forms some of the same um, role as uh, North Melbourne Station forms. That they've said, oh no, it cost another billion dollars to build a station for South Yarra for the uh, Melbourne Metro line. But you know, South Yarra is a booming suburban hub. It's um, got numbers of trains and trams and buses going through. It's obviously the sort of place that should be connected. But you know, but no, no, we can save some money, so we'll 
so we'll we'll cut that out. And I think it might also have been partly a um, a political decision because people in South Yarra don't vote Labor. And I think that is often an influence in the way things are done in Melbourne, which again is is quite upsetting that that's the case. Now you're being cynical, John. I sense. Um... Oh yes, I'm afraid I am, Kevin. <laughs> the older you get with this sort of stuff, the more cynical you become because often you can't see any other possible reason for things being done badly than the uh, hmm. reaching a cynical conclusion. Well, I think you can be cynical about the whole project, can't you, really, in terms of what we're talking about today, where money could have been better spent, it could have been done cheaper, and it's servicing areas that already are re- relatively well serviced. Yep. Well, that's certainly what I think. Well, I think the whole project was questionable. And the money that's that's going up there would have you know would have brought the whole of the, the existing network to a um, really good standard. You know we're talking about fifteen billion dollars for this for this mm. project. And you know the, the other question is too, they they're going to be running longer longer trains, um, seven or maybe nine car trains on the uh, Melbourne Metro line. But obviously all over the whole. The whole rail network, it's is certainly time to decide that the trains are going to be larger than six car trains, because then six car trains are not very large trains by world standards on a um, suburban rail network. I, it's, it seems to me it's certainly time on the busier lines to go to nine car trains, and of course that would mean that you would have to lengthen the stations on the existing Melbourne uh, Metro loop. Mm. Uh, but that's that's not an impossibility. But again, I think the uh, the judgment was made in, in the bureaucratic halls of fame that uh, it was easier to build a whole new project than it was to uh, improve the system. You know, the underground system they already had. That that one was sort of easier for the bureaucrats and the engineers, and the other one was slightly more difficult. Yeah, when I was younger, <laughs> which was before today, obviously, <laughs> many, many years ago when I was younger in the old Red Rattler days, I'm pretty sure they had seven carriage trains in those days. So, so were they shorter carriages or something, do you know? They weren't much shorter. I, I think in the end they just sort of, again, they were thinking along the lines that, you know, the use of public transport isn't going to rise hugely. Of course it has. Because because they thought the attraction of the car was going to be so great, and that they they standardised on six car trains, which again did make life easier for the uh, the people running the system, because yeah, the trains were just easier to manage if they were standard six car, or they could be divided into two three car trains, which of course we don't run anymore, and mm. uh, everything runs for six car trains, which is a good thing, yeah. But it would seem that they'd be able to run seven car trains on the present network uh, through the, at least the, the underground stations, which are the ones that are the most constricted. But they could be extended to, um, I reckon the stations could be extended longer and things like the escalator systems could be improved and all those sort of things. But of course our escalators still run probably the slowest in the Western world. Have you noticed? Have I noticed, John? Yes, I have. Um I, I sometimes count. I actually have this exercise in counting if I'm not walk, walking up yeah. and actually just going on the escalator without walking. Yeah. You can count, and it takes it takes several minutes to get the the big one at Parliament Station, the long one that gets up from the middle to the top. 
That's right. And it's almost, it almost seems to take about a day to get to the top. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's a city in the world that runs its escalators as slow as we run them in Melbourne. So, you know, if you want to increase the capacity of the of the rail system at peak hours, speed up your escalators because they're running much slower than they need to for the for safety and all that sort of thing. Mm. That can be a problem now, of course, with COVID. We're running out of time, but with COVID and the need to distance at the moment, yes. uh, if, if, if public transport does pick up in terms of patronage, that, sure. could be, that will become a problem, obviously. But also just... Say at peak, people getting on and off those escalators, it must be much more difficult to keep distancing, mm. queuing to get on and, and on the escalator itself. That's going to be a real problem, I would think. Well, you would think that running the escalator slower would reduce the capacity, therefore harder to keep um, spaced. Yes. Yeah. Um, that would seem to make sense to us. And, I mean, a lot of people, they say stand on the left and people who want to walk go on the right, but sure. uh, walking past on the escalator, you're not going to be distancing, that's for sure. No, no, well, you're not. Just absolutely can't be done. No. Kevin, I think we might have just about run out of... Um, run out, run out of oh, dear, John, we'll have to pick all this up again next month then, won't we? <laughs> It'd be really interesting to talk about energy efficiency and transport next month. All right, because I, I had a I had another list of stuff here, but we will you know we we'll get on to it eventually. But um, okay, John, look, time is up. Thanks for keeping me in order, <laughs> and uh, and thanks for your time this morning. Okay, and thanks to Karina too. Okay, and I was going to say thank Karina for doing a wonderful job keeping us on air, and she hasn't said one word on this show today, John. Not one word. <laughs> oh, she'll 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 pop up if she really needs to. <laughs> yeah, radio. Okay. Okay, that's it. Uh, next week, uh, energy, and we're hoping to talk about the effect of mining companies and letting them Australian mining companies in Papua New Guinea and West Papua and the incredible environmental damage they cause. So we hope to look at that one next week on City Limits. Okay, thanks. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.